0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: The Big Gym Show is sponsored by Maul & Brawl. Maul & Brawl is the best men's skin and beard care products on the market right now. Maybe. How do I know? Because it's mine. 100% owned by me. Tried and tested by me. Whether you've been mauling in the office or brawling in your bed, Maul & Brawl is for you. We've got a shower gel which is scented dark honey and tobacco. The moisturiser has a scent of ivory musk and the beard oil will make your beard feel smooth and silky and smelling like whiskey. It comes in three packages. The Simple Man, which is the shower gel. The Modern Man, which is the shower gel and the moisturiser. Or the Caveman, which is the shower gel, moisturiser and beard oil. To order, go to mallandbrawl.com. And type in the code BIG 10 for 10% off. Mall and brawl. For men, that mall. Big Jim is wearing his
0: There are ways to ask questions and there are ways to talk and present to people. And if you use Formula One as an example, 20 drivers, I'd probably ask half of them exactly the same question in a different way because I know how their minds operate I know what buttons I need to press the great thing is that when you love what you do it doesn't really feel like work I've never woken up on a morning and thought do you know what? I want to be the best female to ask a question today I want to be the best female to present a program today because I would only be seeing 50% of the bigger picture I want to be the best person was great fun and i did share a podium with michael schumacher albeit i was wearing leather chaps and a stetson at the time so you know it was a bit random
1: on this episode i'm joined by one of the best in the business it's the wonderful the lovely lee McKenzie.
0: God, you must be raking it in if you're on the AG1s. No,
1: I've been on AG1, Athletic Greens, big shout out, for years.
0: Well, I'm an investor in Four or Five. Are you? Yeah, I am. So I'm like staying true to your Saracens friends. That's a big shout out. Unlike you.
1: Well, no. Who's on the AG1? I'm on AG1. I swear by it. This is the thing when you're traveling on the road. Yeah. Everything. Oh, you have
0: to take everything. Yeah. I, like, my bag is normally full of things that will keep me alive for the next month.
1: Yeah.
0: Actually, that rehydrate that 4 or 5 have brought out is a game changer. And I gave it to one of my colleagues during the Grand Prix who was so hungover. And within about 15 minutes, they were like, zing. And,
1: really? Yeah, yeah. What's in it? I don't know. What is asked in George it?
0: I have George and Tom. I'm not sure if they...
1: I'm a big advocate of that kind of stuff. The yeah. CBD, I take that. I do. 4 yeah. or 5... There's a couple of other pure lads. Sport and stuff. Pure Look at us just giving people yeah, the it. millions are going to be like, oh, who are I these? Know. Who do you think you are?
0: Yeah, but then as someone did say to me, um, a supplement is meant to be that. It's meant to supplement good things in your life. You can't yeah. just live on a supplement.
1: Well, <coughs> big shout out to Athletic Greens AG One and Four Five and Four Five George Cruz. He's not asking me. He'd sent me stuff. I said, well, actually, he didn't send me stuff. I was like, you're sending everyone else stuff and you're not sending me stuff. And my back is wrecked from doing all George Cruz's training. What? And then he played the big games. No, they're good, though. They're good lads. Him and Dom Day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> have we even started? I don't know. What's I, going let's
1: on. We'll get into it. It's great to have you, <laughs> in, you in the studio. We've been talking about it for a, a while, uh, haven't it's we? It's been a while. It has. And then we were to- together last week at the World Rugby Conference Award in Dublin. Oh, wow. Do you enjoy it?
0: I loved it. I was hosting, and we had to have lots of meaningful conversations. And then along came something called Boom Time, mm. where we're all given a stick that we just had like hit our hands with and make a musical note for forty-five minutes. Yeah, I thought that was incredible.
1: Some of the stuff I struggled with because it's I'm not used to it. So Boom Town, I did enjoy. Boom time. Boom, boom time. Sorry, I, I was I was engaged. Boom time. Dun, 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 dun. I want to have a, dun, dun, dun. a cup of tea. Yeah, I want to have a cup of tea. So we did, it was a team building exercise. And then we did, I told you about it, where this building bridges out of chopsticks, which I refused to do. Yeah. And... There was a load of things that come from the World Rugby Conference. So for the listeners who don't know, so Lee McKenzie was there as one of the greatest hosts ever. So when <laughs> you were there, I was like, wow, the mean business. Like, this is a real thing. And it was a team building, get to know each other. And again, people will know that I've got a new role at World Rugby as creative director, whatever that means. But this is all new to me, like the corporate environment yeah and I saw you with that I was like oh okay it's the real deal game on and it, g- it came on that was it that's one of the taglines <laughs> and there was different speakers that came up and it was like part of the team building stuff but also they were revealing within the whole organization the insights and I've never done insights before but it's basically you've got to do an online thing like a questionnaire and then it comes out like what you are whether or not like Uh, the colour red of angry men, or yellow, inspiring and lovely, blue, boring as hell, and analytical, green, like, undecisive and just there. I'm being harsh there. But it was to get to know everyone, and it it was quite insightful.
0: Yeah, I didn't get to do that bit. I think that must have been on a Thursday. I was there the Tuesday, Wednesday. But it's interesting. I think people who come from a team sport background treat these things very differently. I didn't ever do team sports really at school, or if I did, it was like to a very basic level. Any sports I did were individual. You could say that presenters are quite selfish people, journalists are quite selfish people. So everything I do is quite individual. So it kind of amazes me when I look around or I go to these things and listen, you know, the importance of team and working together and things, because it, you know, it's a little alien to me. Whereas, um, you know, in conversations I've had with former players or all the rest of it. I'll say, but what happens if you really don't like someone who's in your team? And they're like, well, you just have to get on with it. And I'm like, well, maybe that's a healthier approach as opposed to harboring a grudge for the rest of your life. But it's it's really, it's an interesting dynamic for me going to these sorts of things and seeing it. I always think you can learn something about what you like or possibly what you don't like. But yeah, it was a good couple of days.
1: Yeah, it was. The thing on that insights thing, and I'm a bit of an outlier, Like, I I just am. Like, I do love being in in a team. Like, I need that. I yearn for it. But I also like stepping out and doing my own thing. Like, I'm a little bit rogue, and I like that, as in I'm unapologetic about that. But then doing these insights and stuff, a a lot of the businesses do it, don't they? So you get to know your colleagues. Like, everyone has a voice. Everyone has feelings, which we all know. But that was the interesting thing. I'm just going to get mine up here, actually, because I'm going to profile. Your results. Profile. you. Not all of them. Not all of them, but I took a screenshot of it somewhere.
0: See, I did one of these things once, and the guy, I actually just had to sort of profile myself. And the psychologist who works with a lot of different sports governing bodies said that uh, he, it was, he was really shocked how, not comfortable, but how understanding I was about me as a person, good and bad. You know, I, I sort of sit here, I, I think I pretty much know my flaws Um, are they flaws? Some, some people would definitely say yes. I don't know. It's just part of me and I can change them. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty aware of who I am. All right. It doesn't mean to say it's, it's good, but you know, I think that's half of the thing, isn't it? Knowing yourself.
1: Well, let's find out. Let's find out. So I've got the, I, because the, the way my mind works, I took a picture of like the negative, Okay. Ones of your colours, so...
0: My colours? No, yours?
1: No, I'm, you can say... Yeah, everyone's. <laughs> You've not so, profiled me, have you? <laughs> so, no, you can... I'm going to try and guess. But I say this because okay. me and the wife had an argument the other night, and <laughs> the the bad colours of me came out, and the bad colours of her came out, and I sent her okay. this kind of... I call it a pie chart. It's not a pie chart, is it? It's like a circle wheel, yeah. or whatever it is. And I said, that was the red energy of me coming out against your green. Do you want to hear the green? So I called her green on bad, so... This is like... Back, so, so there are positives. I don't know which ones they are. I've just gone straight for the negative ones. But if you're a green, you're docile. I, and you've got. I called my wife a green. Docile, bland, plodding, reliant, and stubborn. I meant the stubborn part, but okay. I had to read out the docile. I and, just think lots are bland. being
0: changed whilst you're
1: sitting here. I know. I know. And then I said... I brought out my yellow, okay. which was excitable, frantic, <laughs> indiscreet, flamboyant, hasty. But she said... Well it's not, she said, because you were red, which was aggressive, <laughs> controlling, driving, overbearing, and intolerant. Intolerant. Yeah. That was me. And then you've got blue, which is uh, I'm not a blue fan. Stuffy, indecisive, suspicious, cold, and reserved. And mm. I said that was weird. And she said, Well, you can't say that that's I might have a couple
0: weird. of bits from blue. I might be cold. Okay. Cold towards people sometimes.
1: So the blue one is also like very analytical. Maybe doesn't speak unless there's something that really needs, needs to be said. I oh, know, no, no. no. As <laughs> you'll
0: find out over the next hour. <laughs> we might have a little bit
1: of uh, a little bit of a blue, but we learned that from the World Rugby Conference. Okay. So with all these sports that you're in, and rugby's in a weird place. So when yeah. you went there, and this isn't me selling World Rugby. This isn't me mm. talking up because I'm involved. Like I've genuinely taken that role. I wasn't going to take the role because. I didn't understand the direction of rugby. I was actually thinking, do I potentially move away from rugby? And then I met with my boss, James Rothwell, and he, well, yeah, he sold me the dream yeah. and spoke to me about some of the people that were involved in this vision. You got to see a snapshot of that. I've mm. taken the role, which kind of says that I've not just taken it because it's a job, I didn't need to take it. I wanted to. Yeah. And I've seen the blueprint of, how the game moves forward, and yes, there's other stuff that needs to be done. I understand that, but as in the headline stuff, the direction of the game was and is so exciting. Yeah, I wish I could tell people, but there is stuff in the works and what you can say now. I'm in a corporate environment. But when you were there, could you see bits where you were like, Yeah, I get it, I can see the direction of travel, and rugby has got the ability to get itself in a really good place again?
0: I think when you're presenting sport or sitting at home watching sport you do not consider the fact that there is hundred there are hundreds of people um, with a plan for the next 10 years particularly if you look at what's happened in rugby domestically in the UK over the last you know 12 months uh, you could be you know quite within your rights to think well what on earth are rugby doing is there a 12-month plan is there a 12-year plan so for me it was very heartening to see the the understanding that there is. I think what's also really important is that the fact that if that Rugby World Cup hadn't happened in 2019 um, just before the pandemic hit I think rugby would be in a much much more difficult place globally and and that sort of gives you goosebumps thinking about Mm. it i mean the olympics paralympics were delayed i did them in 2021 i was meant to do the british large lions tour um i I couldn't get to south africa i did it from flanethley which isn't quite what i signed up for but it was still fun um i think that rugby uh, is in a really great place but there's so much expansion that there can They can still have and I think that's the real positive thing about it that there is it's such a you know I think it's a a wonderful sport it's the first sport I ever actually watched as a as a kid you know my father used to take me to uh, rugby matches all over and you know I want it to be bigger and better and more inclusive uh, in terms of the countries like you know going to the states and things is hugely important trying to involve other countries trying to lift tier two Otherwise, there's not going to be any growth, any more development, and there needs to be.
1: When they say inclusivity, you've just nailed it there. That's when we talk about diversity, inclusivity in rugby, like you've nailed it there. The other countries, like Mm -hmm. the tier two countries, which have the keys to the kingdom, because some of them are the greatest rugby players on earth. We've spoken about it, Lowe's on the rugby pod. But you only have to look, and I'm not saying that South Africa are a a tier two nation, they're not. But with everything that goes with that and then where they come from, different parts of Africa as well, like a lot of from Zimbabwe, Mm. from Namibia as well, but more so Fiji, Tonga, uh, Samoa, Georgia now as well. Like that's what I think you mean. That's what I mean when we talk about inclusivity and growing the game. It's not necessarily, oh, we need to do X, Y and Z and start ticking boxes.
0: Yeah, I I don't think these countries you know, should be plundered. I understand why players go off and play elsewhere. That's absolutely fine. I, I uh, You know, you could see it from uh, the Rugby World Cup. Um, you know, you saw the squads that were announced last week now that the players are returning to play for their nations. And you're like, wow, these are like becoming super sides. Mm. You know, people talked about, oh, there's only a few teams and, um, you know, that could win this World Cup and all the rest of it. I think there's going to be a few shocks because all these you know guys going back you know charles pieta and all these big names going back you're like wow we've created some super sides here just by changing the rules um and hopefully that because it doesn't matter what sport you're in it doesn't matter where you're from you've got to have people to look up to and if you're coming from a pacific island um you want to look up to people who are representing your island not who are Representing England or New Zealand or even Scotland or something like that. I understand why it's happened, but um, how how great would it be to get back to the stages where you know Fiji, uh, Tonga, Samoa, you know they are really properly taking the world on.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. Like the World Cup is going to be unbelievable. Yeah, I cannot in, wait. In France, like genuinely, because. We are sat in the studio in London, and the Premiership is not even on its knees; it's on its back at the minute. And I just put a tweet. I'm not great on Twitter. That's why I love doing podcasts. I'm just not great at like well, you know, because I send you voice notes. I'm not great <laughs> at texting or typing, and yeah. I can't contextualise. But I put a tweet out about like the World Cup, how good it's going to be. Yeah. Having watched the top 14, yeah, final. Oh, I mean, France is just a crazy rugby country, yeah. anyway, and it's a thriving market from all points participation Mm. uh the commercial tv deals salary of players which i'm big for and people hate me keep banding on about it but france talking about japan Mm. the investment that they've got yes it's money coming from big businesses and there are pockets of growth where I, i see the game is in a great place and i think the world cup in france will showcase that and I am one for being positive about it. I understand the problems and the issues rugby's had. but All sports have issues and problems, but also see the positives. And I think the World Cup in France will paper over, if that's the right term to use, the cracks that are in the game, but ho- hopefully, like, propel us forward. It's the third biggest, I'm going to say it's the third, it might be the fourth, but the third biggest. Yeah, they showcase said the third. yeah, yeah. They, they said the third you know at the world rugby conference but like having been there and you think about the football world cup how big that is the olympics that you've been a part of as well it's the third biggest yeah like that's rugby that's my sport yeah that's a sport that you're involved in as well so rugby's not dying it's, no you,
0: could, you just have to look at the six nations that we had this year for that as well i think that was uh okay there was a lot of politics going on during it particularly in wales but yeah, I thought I thought it was fantastic to see Italy raise their game. Um, that's what you want. You there shouldn't be a match that you go into it almost knowing the outcome before it started. Mm. And I think it was um, it was a bit of a tonic, you know, for for all the other dramas that had been going on in the background.
1: Positivity. I were not going to talk about too much about rugby with you. <laughs> well, I have been listening to your book for the last few days. Oh wow! Thank I have, you. I was very happy actually. Big shot inside F one. Yeah. Are you sick of the sound F1? of my
0: voice? Because I actually narrate the audio
1: book. Yes, break. I like that. Okay. And I did ask you, because I'm not great at reading either, so mm. audio and I was like, I'm only going to listen to it if you're narrating yeah. it. Like Matthew McConaughey does his green lights, or yeah. Rad or Rad, like, as in, <laughs> I need the authenticity <laughs> with it. And there was a few things. I am listened to it all, Okay. nine hours or eight hours yeah. and a bit. But I was, I was very happy because the introduction, the foreword, yeah. Is by David, David Coulthard. 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 I was going to say Coulthard, but you, uh, everyone
0: yeah. calls him David Coulthard. Does he hate he it? Just, no, he just replies to anything.
1: Okay, David Coulthard said it.
0: Coulthard, yeah.
1: But then I was very happy because my favourite driver was up first, mm. Michael Schumacher, yeah. the great Michael Schumacher. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about Lewis Hamilton, which we can get onto. He was second. Yeah. So I was like, do I skip through to the end where Jensen Button's the last one? I was like, no, I'm going to listen to these two properly, and then I segued into a few of the others. Okay. But your it, it seems from listening to that book sounds weird to say listen to a book yeah that it, it would is it fair to say that formula one is your favorite sport the one that you've grown up with i mean because you're across so many rugby we've just touched on formula one tennis yeah. olympics like the biggest sports but i get the sense that formula one is the one
0: formula one is all-encompassing just because it Has taken up so much of my life, um, which wasn't really a a conscious choice. It's just uh, the way it worked out. You know, now there's 23 races a year. You don't do all the races. uh, Nobody in their right mind, apart from the drivers, do all the races, but then they have a bit of financial gain and they're flying in their own planes. Um, So we split the presentation. You know, when I first got into it, there were maybe 18 races a year or something and it would take up half over half three quarters of the year now it's almost wall to wall so by default it becomes your life and I do absolutely love it but I don't I wouldn't say it was they are above rugby or above doing Wimbledon I think w- when you break it down you will be some races that you don't enjoy there'll be some races that you absolutely love a little bit like you know, I love the Six Nations and I love Wimbledon. So you can actually like, you know, sections of rugby or sections of tennis, as it were. Um, and there are some races which are fantastic. And I love the places that we go to. And there are others where you're a bit like, hmm, do I really want to go to that one? Mm. Um, but it's uh, it's everything. It's entertainment, it's politics, it's, you know, some of the highest class sport. There's an element of danger. There's everything really rolled into Formula One. But that people are starting to see now because of all the uh, behind-the-scenes programs that that go on. Um, but I've been part of it since a very early age. I was the annoying kid that turned up at so many different sports events, which was fantastic because I was exposed to so much. And then I was like, "People can get paid to do this. Sign me up." <laughs> yeah. And you know, and and I kind of was working in sport from the age of fifteen onwards. And I I did news as well. I did the Lockerbie trial and uh, you know general elections and things too, um, but. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: So in the, is it the foreword?
0: The foreword. At the yeah. start? Yes.
1: The introduction, introduction, I was going to call it. You spoke about something quite powerful, and it was being at the race that Ayrton Center passed.
0: I, my father was there. I was watching it on TV. Oh, I you were watching yeah, so your father was, was
1: there. So you got, I mean, that was one of the first things I imagine that you yeah. saw.
0: So I used to watch Formula 1 because I couldn't quite understand where my dad went every weekend. I was like, this is really weird. He's on the jolly. Yeah, he's on the jolly. So that's why I started watching sport, because it was a sort of understanding as, you know, as to where your family vanished off to. And I was watching that race. Um, My father was there. He ended up going to Ayrton's funeral uh, in Brazil. And that was the. That whole weekend, actually, we we focus on the Sunday. um, But the Friday, there was a massive accident for Rubens Barrichello. The Saturday, there was a massive accident which resulted in the death of Roland Ratzenberger. And then the Sunday, there was the accident. This is all at the same racetrack, Imola, that claimed the life of Ayrton Senna. So as a weekend for a young girl watching sport and me thinking that sport was a great fun place that you go to lose yourself or just have a couple of hours watching something suddenly took quite a a nasty turn because you realise that some sports are not just dangerous but they can claim lives and that one weekend was I suddenly realised the enormity of what can happen you know in, in Formula One terms
1: yeah it was I mean crazy and you saw this yeah. thing. And I, I recently, I, I used to watch Formula One. I do watch a little bit of it now. Yeah. Big shout out to Drive Survive. They got me back into it. Like millions of others in America as well. Yeah. Danny ricardo never heard of him before. Did I call him Danny?
0: You can call him Danny. Can I call he, him he, Danny? He's, um, he, he would like you to call him Danny. Oh, he right. fine. Yeah. He's a good guy.
1: Daniel. Daniel Ricardo, Danny Rick. So, yeah, that's when you know. that. Actually, so I, I was a Formula One fan. Yeah. So gr- growing up, watching Schumacher, yeah. Um, Ferrari, the, all the icon. Yeah. The easy stuff to watch, like watching Monaco, had the yeah. Formula One game yeah, as course. well, which I absolutely love, like just rinsing people on the outside in Monaco. And uh, cause you can't overtake that, can you? It's a hard place to overtake yeah. in Monaco. Not in the game, it's not. You just fly down the inside, rip your wheels off. Um, <laughs> so I, I used to love Formula One and then just didn't have the time to watch it. And then yeah. now I've got back into it, like a really interesting sport. Because of the... It's, and this is what drives the survival show. It's the glitz, the glamour, the money, the travel. Yeah. It is, I mean, it's quite an unbelievable setup when you think about it. And you, like you being in involved in that, yeah. and this is a two-pronged question. So with the glitz and the glamour, everything that goes with it, I know there's a lot of travel. And we can get onto that, like how you manage that. But also being a woman in that environment, because from what I see, it's all men where are, are there many other women involved? Yeah, there are. There
0: are, there like are. When, when I first started, my first full season in F1 was 2009, but I'd been I'd done all the support races just like the drivers do. You know, very few people turn up in F1. You've got to start and, and work your way up, uh, which is what I did. And um uh, going back to like say 2005, there weren't that many. Um but there are always more. You know, at the beginning, I suppose, there were grid girls and catering girls and a few journalists. And now there are a lot more journalists. There's a lot more female presence. There are engineers, Um, you know, there are strategists sitting on the pit wall, which I think is really important. People spend their life asking me about, you know, when will there be the next um, female Formula One driver? And I work with um some different uh, sort of projects and commissions And I don't want to just focus on the next female driver. I want to focus on um, engineers and strategists, which is a bit ironic because these are, you know, your STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, basically four subjects that I wasn't allowed near at school because I wasn't remotely bright enough. But I think it's really empowering and important to uh, show to young girls that they can sit on a pit wall and they can determine race strategy and some of the. You know, the great females um, or the great strategists out there are, are female, but you maybe don't get to see that as mm. much. So it's not like I'm the only female wandering around. You do sometimes get on a plane because quite often we charter flights and sometimes you get on it and you'll look around and you'll be like, yeah, all I see is mass, massive men. But mm. I don't even really notice it because it's my work. And and
1: you've been in you, it all you your just, life yeah, as you well. Yeah, you just sort
0: of like get on with it.
1: So the women can race. Can they? If if there was a woman that came through that was good enough, she'd be able to race? 100%. And has that happened before? Yeah, she there, have, there have
0: been female Formula One drivers in the past, um, you know, not for a very long time. We're getting on 50 years now. But uh, there are, I've presented for the last few years, a, a all-female racing series, which I wasn't sure about when it first started off, because... You know, my background would be equestrian or I've, I've done some co-driving in the World Rally Championship as well. But I couldn't quite understand why women needed their own series. So I went out to Spain and I spoke spoke to all the girls and some of them were, were very talented and I knew that. I just didn't understand why they hadn't got on. They just said there was absolutely no sponsorship or uh, opportunity available for them. So I thought, well, they would know more than I do. I'd formed the wrong opinion, so I started to present it and um and that has been a springboard for them to go so Jamie Chadwick won the the championship for the last three years she's now racing in America um and there are some really really talented young girls coming through sort of 18 19 but as i say you don't just start in formula 1 mm. so it's going to take time for the person to get to formula one standards and also i think it's really worth saying as well you don't want someone there just for tokenism because the the spotlight is going to be so hard on whoever that female driver is she can't be average and there have been a few guys over the years who have been on the grid that it's always discussed you know should they have been there have they bought their place there um that has happened but this poor girl, whoever it's going to be, this blessed girl, is going to have to be absolutely at the peak and as tough as she can be because every single thing she does is going to be scrutinised. But she needs to be there on merit. That's the most important thing for me. There can be no tokenism. She needs to be there on merit. Otherwise, it undoes all all the efforts that have been made for the past few years.
1: Can you see it happening?
0: I can see it happening but I can't see it happening in the next uh, three, four or five years.
1: Because the amount of science and investment to look into that space, I mean, it's obvious, right? In rugby, a woman can't play in the men's game Mm -hmm. because of the contact element. But from a racing point of view, have they looked into anything why there aren't more women around the brain, around...
0: There's been so many different discussions. No matter who you speak to, everybody has an opinion on it. I mean... I heard an interesting study which was being uh, done on how to get more Japanese-Chinese racing drivers, because obviously there's huge, vast amounts of money. There have been a lot of Japanese racing drivers uh, over the years. We've had our first Chinese racing driver just now in Formula One. And actually there's a a study which is comparing uh, females actually to the, the body prototype of, say, a Japanese racing driver, because they tend to be smaller, lighter. Formula One also is, um, you know, the, the drivers are slightly like jockeys. They're a lot shorter than you'd think they were. They have a weight limit. Um, there's, uh, you know, they, they have, you know, 3%, 2% fat in some cases. When you speak to a Mark Webber who is a tall driver, David Cothar, Jensen Button, the perfect example of that. These guys were so light, in fact, still are so light. It's incredible. But they've put their bodies into that position. So, you know, the, the smaller and lighter you are, the more benefit in many ways that there is. So, yeah, it's if it's anything, it's, it's more difficult in the support races where the cars don't have power steering that's where it, you know a, a female might be more hampered than actually in Formula One.
1: And then because they're hampered there, they don't get the opportunity then to exactly, step to up. to progress. Yeah, really interesting. It'd be amazing to see. Yeah, just because of well, even me, like I said, my ignorance to—I didn't even know there was.
0: Yeah, and, the, and the, a Formula One, you wouldn't? know, Formula uh, There's um, female drivers in the states mm. uh, racing at the highest level. Yeah, I'm sure sure and the racing that's, in the Indy 500, Indy 500 and things 500 as well, one, yeah. you know, and, and uh, the Indy Car Championship over there. There's there are quite a few.
1: How pally do you get with the drivers? I well, mean, they, of, these these are some of the most famous sports. Do they Talk all of them athletes. Of course, yes. they're athletes. Don't you swear? Of course. Yeah, they are. Just because they're in a the car. But Jensen Button did the
0: the London Marathon mm. in two hours and fifty minutes or oh, something like that. So you know they are pretty fit. They're not just slotting in and driving a car. Mm. Uh, some races they lose you know three four kilos through sweat like a Singapore or something like that. So they've got to be pretty fit. I never set out to be friends with a racing driver, a rugby player, a tennis player. You know if it happens it's a bonus because it's nice when it happens but particularly f1 you know we tend to be on the same flights you go to the same restaurants you mix in the same circles it's not like uh when you cover rugby you might see you know a saracens three times a year you know we are actually seeing the same people like 20 odd weekends of the year Um, so you naturally do get to know each other and and share experiences good and bad and you know if you're in Japan and there's a super typhoon you're all sort of like bunkered down together Um, so you do get to know them also some of the drivers I started with like I said before that you know in the support races. So Nico Halkenberg, I've known since he was 17, Sergio Perez, exactly the same. I think Checo was Sergio Perez was 16. Lewis Hamilton, I knew him. Um, you know, a couple of times we had to share the, the higher car when we were both in the support races together. Um, so yeah, you, you do get to know people and then you'll drift apart. But there's always that level of respect because you always kind of know where you came from.
1: One of the coolest things, and I'm glad it came early because I got to listen to it in the book, was around... You have been invited to Michael Schumacher's yeah house. to the ranch yeah so to the ranch to the ranch in <laughs> to Switzerland the ranch. oh I'm I'm gutted by his story yeah I'm yeah I'm gutted I don't know it doesn't seem like there's going to be a good ending and I don't want you to tell me I don't want to know I think the when you speak about it and say that naturally people reached out to you for comment and opinion and you were just like no. I'm not even as your role as a journalist who should or is be seen to be should to be given an opinion that you didn't and again But I think
0: that's a really important thing it would have been opinion I can't give an opinion on someone's medical state Mm. you know that's not something which you can discuss I can discuss Michael's career I can discuss what Michael was like in my um, sort of dealings with him and getting to know him reasonably well but at that time, after Michael's accident, I had no knowledge. Mm. Why would I go on television or radio and discuss it?
1: Mm.
0: A lot of people did, but it just didn't feel right at all to me. Mm.
1: Why have they not? What, why has nothing come out? Like, Why do you think? Because you've got one They're of the most very famous... Private. Yeah. They're just
0: and private. Sometimes I think it's maybe angered the absolute diehard Michael Schumacher fans because they've invested in his career even in his, you know, going to see him, um, merchandise, all the rest of it. So they would love to know, out of the goodness of their heart, you know, they would love to know. But uh, I don't know, there's a whole thing uh, in journalism generally, is it public interest or the interest of the public? I think that's always a really important debate. Um, But we don't own the right to someone's personal space i think that a lot of people particularly nowadays with social media social media and things think that everybody owns the right to everyone's there's no such thing as privacy anymore Mm. but i'm really against that i think if you want to keep something private absolutely keep something private it's none of our business what happens in other people's lives unless they want to put it out there
1: yeah absolutely right i mean sad Really sad. Yeah. Um, What was it like though with him being? What's his gaff like? As you could imagine. Do
0: you know what was strange? I, like you, grew up watching Michael Schumacher dominating a sport that I loved. Then he retired. And I actually met him the first time uh, in London. He was, uh, I was hosting an event and he was coming on stage and I was told I wasn't allowed to speak to him and I I thought that was strange. But that came from his agent at the time or his manager, I should say. And then Michael came on stage and I did speak to him and he was absolutely lovely. Then he came out of retirement and I couldn't believe my luck. I mean, I always think you shouldn't be, I starstruck when you're doing my job because it's a job and I have to be professional and all the rest of it. But I was so excited and nervous that I was going to be able to interview Michael. And for whatever reason, we just uh, quite early on, we did interviews and it got a lot of traction. You know, it was when you know, social media and things were was kicking off massively and people would see it like worldwide, the BBC had the rights to Formula One. It was going out in countries all over the world. And um, yeah, and it just took on a life of its own. So therefore, you know, sometimes I'd do an interview with, with him and then the following week we'd, You know, he'd want to address what he said to me, so therefore I had to go back and do another interview with him and he'd start off by saying something like, Lee, I think I made you very famous last week (laughs) and I'd be like, You did, did. Michael, you did. Um, but there was a real respect there. And he knew that I had horses and that was my background and I knew that he did as well. And he came up with this plan. Uh, His family, particularly his daughter, Gina Maria, um, is a very good equestrian, but in Western riding. So you think of like Yellowstone. It's not quite rodeo, but it is raining. Uh, That's what it's called. It's like dressage, a gallop. And I'd never done it before. So I got on this horse in West Sussex, had like two one-hour lessons, couldn't move. I was in absolute agony. And then I was like, okay, we'll take it to Switzerland. And the BBC were like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, you have to do a risk assessment. So we're like, what is this? And I was like, well, it's literally dressage, a gallop, basically. It's a series of movements. Do you wear a hat? No. Do you wear any body protection? No. Is this your own horse? No.
1: About they, riding. They
0: can basically, well, you have a saddle and stuff, but they were just like, they were, this is never going to pass. And I was like, I will take the hit on this if if there needs to be one and then sort of like the final question was like do we need to ensure Michael Schumacher I was like no you don't and yeah. then it was like absolutely fine so we went out there and it was fantastic and he was an incredible host but we were like the you know when you get the mascot that like comes and tries to take a penalty kick and like the crowd go wild because like who are these people you know clowning around that was essentially us we were the halftime entertainment so it was the European Championships People like who really knew what they were doing, and then there was myself, Michael, and a few others, and um, it was amazing. And we did an interview, and it went out on camp, it went out on BBC, and all the rest of it. But it was great fun, and I did share a podium with Michael Schumacher, albeit I was wearing leather chaps and a stetson at the time, so you know it was a bit random.
1: So cool though. What's he like off the camera? But well, I mean, because great. we're talking about one of the greatest have ever done it, and you talk about the spotlight. Just around social media, imagine if it was now. Oh, my gosh. I'd be, I mean, he'd be one of the most yeah. famous people who wears a helmet. So you don't even see him Don't so that That's much. the thing. With
0: that. Exactly. And that's why for uh, social media has really opened up the world of... Um, You know, motorsport, because these guys, you know, it's not like a golfer or a rugby player that when the final whistle goes or when they get to the 18th and the, you know, the ball drops in the hole that you see the elation or disappointment on their face. You know, it's a faceless sport in many ways, which is why it has been opened up because of social media and other programs as well. Um, But I always got on well with Michael. You had to be absolutely ready for anything that he would say, both on and off camera but he has he had such a, a real warmth about him I mean it's in the book but I went to film with him uh, the week before the British Grand Prix at the Mercedes factory and for some reason he I was to paint the Mercedes TriStar on the front of the Formula One car but it was like with one of those paint guns and it was awful I mean literally it just was like flying around out of my hand and I just had my nails done because I thought I should look, like, you know, smart on camera. And he grabbed my hand and he got the paint gun and he just sprayed across the top. He's like, "Do you want a manicure?" And sprayed across. <laughs> but I really don't think you're meant to get this sort of like car paint on your hands. It's mm-hmm. probably quite, you know, lethal. And it was there for like two weeks. I was walking around like the Tin Man or something. Cause I had this silver top of my hand.
1: You should <laughs> for have the got it tattooed Crawford. and said, Ma- Michael Schumacher did that? <laughs> That's what, I've got a picture. Of him through, the, I don't even know if he said, it says it's signed. You know, you get the, yeah. like, the stamp on the back saying he signed it to Jim, or to Jim, as he would say. He does not say love from Michael Schumacher, let's just say it does. He signed it, so okay. I've got that at home. Keeping it for, and I've got Lionel Messi's boot as well, I'm sure. Mm. It, yeah, it's probably not, but it says it is. Well, where
0: did you get these?
1: So I bought if the you Lionel. Bought them
0: at the Barras in Glasgow, they're not legit.
1: <laughs> no. So I got the Lionel Messi boot in Cyprus at a military event. Okay. For about 500 quid, no one wanted to buy it. I thought, that's Lionel Messi's boot. 500 quid, it's an investment. So, what would that be worth now, do you reckon? I don't know. 50 grand? No. it's not. He's not signed it, has he?
0: Well, you kind of want a certificate. I've thing. got a certificate.
1: Oh, right. I well, have. But does that mean it's legit or not? I remember Martin well, Johnson, so. when he won the World Cup in 2003, our team manager was <laughs> signing <laughs> All the shirts come oversharing again.
0: Yeah. So... You probably want to edit that bit That's
1: what's happened. No, we don't. We keep it raw. (laughs) Is there anyone else that you really enjoy their company with? Well, I know the answer to the question, but...
0: Yeah, I think um, I'm sort of mostly known for my interviews and uh, the sort of fun relationship I had with Sebastian Vettel. Mm. But the great thing about Seb was he... I don't want to speak in the past tense about him because, you know, he's actually driving a car in a couple of weeks' time at Goodwood as well. But he is... um, So clever, so intelligent. You could throw anything at him, which is why he did Question Time a couple of years ago. You know, a a programme that politicians shy away from and he turned up in the UK and did it in his second language. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could put anything to Seb and he would have a really uh, intelligent, witty, funny um, response. Uh, And I really appreciated that. And I don't actually think he ever got the respect he deserved when winning those four titles. He just used to really piss people off for some reason by winning and it's almost like when he stopped winning people are like God he's a nice guy it's like I don't really know what happens sometimes and that's sort of like the psyche that people have when they watch sport there's just some teams uh, in rugby as well there's some people that just really piss people off and when Seb was winning for whatever reason he was one of those people I think Mm -hmm. people still have that a little bit actually with Red Bull you know they just for whatever reason they just uh, they just get a bit riled by Red Bull, um, but they don 't seem to get like that with uh, with Mercedes, for example
1: so this is a really superficial kind of question or statement. I get that feeling with Lewis Hamilton, not me personally, mm-hmm. but when people you talk about warming to and maybe it 's a time thing i don 't know because we talk about Schumacher and everyone 's Michael Schumacher, the greatest of all time. Am I right in saying that Lewis Hamilton has won the same?
0: Same number of championships.
1: And I feel that it doesn't feel the same energy towards him. Is that because he's still driving and it needs a bit of time to pass? Is it the moment in time? Is there something more uh, deeper into into that? That's just me, or is it a British thing?
0: Well, I don't know. Do you feel that you could relate to Michael Schumacher? No, exactly. Well, people think if you if you compare, for example, and, and I'm not talking in world championships, but if you compare a Jensen Button and a Lewis Hamilton, mm. people felt that Jensen was the bloke you could walk into a pub and have yes. a pint with, whereas Lewis you couldn't do that with. Um, he just w- operates in a very different way. But for me, I'm mean, you know I'm a huge Michael fan. I think he's you know the greatest mm. driver. But Lewis Hamilton on track is incredible. He makes very, very few mistakes. Uh, How he conducts himself, the fact he's won championships for um, different teams as well, I think that always is is a mark of a great. Uh, He puts himself in a position, even when he doesn't have a a great car, um, that he sort of always fights and battles hard. And the fact that he's stuck around when I think a lot of people thought he would just go, okay, I'm not winning, thank you very much. He has such a desire to be successful. But I get why people don't feel they can relate to him. But he has been, he came in into Formula One with such a huge um, sort of weight on his shoulders. He was like the next big thing. He hadn't even turned the wheel of a Formula One car and he was being heralded as a world champion. He grew up in the public eye. His life went from earning no money to earning tens of millions of pounds. But I, I think that the Lewis we have now is almost gone full circle to where he started in Formula One. He's as true to himself now as he was when he was, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20. And then when you're growing up, you know, people lose themselves a little bit. You know, the money takes over or they start hanging around with different friends or different people or all of a sudden, you know, you're going and getting invited to Met Galas and things like that. But... I think recently, the more success, successful he's got, um, the more truer to himself or maybe more confident in himself he's become. Everything he does, his charitable work, his activism, uh, you know, he's got the same friends that he's had since he was a kid with a sort of new, a few newbies along the way, who are, you know, loyal friends. But it's not easy to make, New friends, I wouldn't imagine. I, mean, I don't know because I don't earn tens of millions of pounds. But I think you see it with footballers as well. Who do you trust? Who do you have alongside you? Mm. Um, I, I like Lewis. I think he gets. Uh, not, I don't. Does he get a bad press? I don't think so. But I think uh, I understand why people maybe don't warm to him because he doesn't always put that out there. But I think as a, a sportsman and actually as a human being, he's he's, you know, he's pretty up there.
1: It could be, and uh, look, I don't look at any of the media, obviously, because I can't speak Spanish, broken French, German, whatever the language is. So maybe, I, I'm again, I keep saying superficial, but maybe it is being British. We don't embrace...
0: Applaud our own.
1: And I, we don't, do we? we? We do to a certain point. But then we bring them down.
0: And then we get like really pissed off that they're successful.
1: It's like a crash and burn. That's what we do. I saw that with David Beckham... Seen it with Wayne Rooney. Can understand. He's uh, got a checkered kind of history in the in the public eye.
0: People, you you see it. You know, Andy Murray's had a bit of it. Emma Raducanu's had a bit of it as well. You know, no one. And I, I always say this: uh, no one picks up a tennis racket or drives a cart or picks up a rugby ball when they're a kid in the hope of being interviewed by someone like me. Mm. That's just an unfortunate part of what the job is um, when it comes to being an athlete in this day and age. And no one sets out when they take to a field or a racetrack or a tennis court to do badly. But if you're a sports person, if you're an athlete, you know, that's what's going to happen. You're going to lose more than you win on the whole. Mm. And um, and yet some people seem to revel in that fact. And I think it's a lot of people with uh, who have ignorance about what it is and what it takes to be a professional athlete.
1: Andy Murray's a great example. I love the bloke. Yeah. Even more since watching the doc, and fair play to him for opening up prime video, I yep. think... I watched it maybe during the pandemic, but I watched it and I loved it. And I thought, of course, this bloke is a great bloke. Most people are good people. But when you look at his personality on the court, Scottish, dour, but I have only heard like great things.
0: Yeah, I really like Andy. I like interviewing him. Again, he is someone who really fronts up. It doesn't matter um, if I'm on centre court, and he's got a crowd around him. He doesn't feel the need to say the right thing, um, or or what would be perceived to be the right thing. I, I think it, he's refreshing in that respect. And I, I he's actually as well been you know he's done he's gone to his own beat. I think it's because of his mum Judy, and then uh, he had you know a female coach and all the rest. He he's not done things that would be perceived as the norm. And I really like the fact that you know he's. Still battling hard with a hip that should. Why is he doing that? Do you think? Him. Because he loves it. He absolutely loves it.
1: Mm.
0: Again, I don't know this. I speak to sports people all the time, but you must have seen it. When you know that there's a finite amount of time on your career, why would you stop too early? He won at the weekend. Yeah, you know, I he's saw won. That. Ch- he's he. Okay, he's gone out of Queens early, but I think he has had 16 matches. In a row, that's where he's always going to fall down just with the wear and tear. Because when I interviewed him when he went out of Wimbledon last year the problem with him is it's not necessarily his his hip it's everything that becomes re- referred pain from that so if you're saving there then that knee goes mm. or that shoulder goes things that you didn't have and you add in the fact that you know he is getting older and and this is what we see with Rafa this is what we see with other athletes as well but the fact that Andy has a metal hip i mean it, it defies well, the, belief
1: yeah and and with a metal hip and I I know players From rugby and other sports as well where, yes, they're unbelievable what they can do now. But when I saw him going through that, automatically wrote him off. I was like, yeah, he's done. And he won at the weekend. What was the...
0: He won a tournament at the weekend and he won it last year as well. But what's so interesting is that the joy that he had and then it was Father's Day and he sort of said, oh, I'm going to go home now and see my kids and blah, blah, blah. And he didn't know that his wife, Kim, had actually brought them to watch. Mm. And he looks up and he sees them in the crowd. And it's just, um, you know, there won't be too many days like that for Andy Murray going forward. I hate to say it, but that would be, again, the law of averages of sport and age and everything. So if he's enjoying it and still winning, why would he not keep going? He doesn't need the money. He's only doing it for love. If he's in pain and doing it and you don't need the money, you're doing it for love. Exactly. And I think that's really important. He had the same, um, hip as uh, Sean O'Brien has mm. and I know that they had dinner and spoke about it and Andy Murray was like blown away that Sean was going to play in a contact sport with this hip and uh, Sean was blown away the fact that Andy was going to be like you know shuffling around sideways and trying to slide on clay and all the rest of it but that's why Andy you know didn't play the French Open and, and saves himself for, for the grass court time so fingers crossed it because he went out of Queen's it means he won't have a seeding for Wimbledon um, which is tricky Because it could, you know, he could meet, you know, one of the top 10 in the first round. But, you know, I can't wait to see him there. I'll be on court and I cannot wait to see him.
1: When he won Wimbledon, I was just thinking about it as you were talking. I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. The emotion. Yeah. It was, and this, you talk about like celebrating what we have in Britain. Like he's one of the greatest athletes we've ever had.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And watching
1: him win Wimbledon, who did the interview?
0: Uh, it, it would have been Sue Barker.
1: Sue Barker. Yeah. It was Sue Barker. And the just the emotion, like you could. Yeah. And the thing is with tennis, right? It's all so close, isn't it? And I think about other sports. I talk about rugby, like the greatest sport on the planet, because I'm obviously want to talk about my sport. Yeah. But then I look at like what would be the most difficult sports from a pressure perspective, because yeah. you're in a team sport. It is much easier if you're having an off day, like you can hide a little bit. The greatest don't hide. I didn't hide. But when you look at these individual sports Uh, and a look at tennis...
0: Tennis blows my mind. Tennis blows my mind when I'm on court and watching it. And when you see them almost having sort of a a bit of a breakdown Mm. and screaming at their box and they are so lost in that moment. It's like they've forgotten that there's an entire stadium of people on top of them watching them. They forget that there are television cameras. The pressure that they are under... They just go into their own headspace. They go into their own world. And I'm fascinated by tennis players in particular, because that's probably the only sport I cover of individual athletes. But they fascinate me. They fascinate me in the interviews I do with them afterwards. Um, You know, they have a team, but like, you know, we're talking physios and managers and people like that, coaches. Uh, In that moment on the court, it's them. And half the time, it's them against themselves Mm. because it is such psychological game that, you know, you, you look at someone like Carlos Alcaraz, who's number one in the world. He will be, well, he is a Grand Slam champion, but he will go on to be a great. How great, we're not quite sure. He gets to the final of Roland Garros, the French Open, and he looks at Novak Djokovic standing over the other side of the net. And the guy is so stressed that he has full body cramps and can barely get through the match. Now Djokovic goes on to become the most successful tennis player of all time. That is the fear that these guys—your uh, Rafa's, Roger's, Novaks—and at the you know earlier on, you know a few years ago, Andy would put into these guys just by their presence over a net. It's such a psychological sport and. A little bit like uh, Drive to Survive, Um, there's a tennis.
1: Fucking so good. It's
0: good. And what worries me is whilst I'm sitting here chatting to you is that the second part of um, the series Breakpoint drops today. And I just know that the producer came up to me at the Miami Grand Prix and went, Lee, you're going to be in the Nick Kyrgios one for Wimbledon. It's amazing. And I'm now sitting here thinking... It's today the twenty first of June, it comes out today. So I really need... does it. Yeah, because obviously last year I did a lot of interviews on court with Nick, and they became they got again a lot of traction uh, worldwide. They went really well.
1: I really like it. But
0: um, yeah, it was just about giving him the space to be him. And is he
1: quite intimidating when he's? Especially I've done in t- a lot in of interviews
0: with him over the years, and uh, some have been great, some haven't been great. But then he's been very, very open about his various struggles. So, you know, I don't know when he turns up to speak to me, but he's not wanting to speak to me. Let's be honest. He doesn't want to speak to me. But again, that's just part of the job. And I don't take any offence in that whatsoever. You know, there's plenty of other things he could be doing with his time. And likewise for me. But, you know, I love my job. And I really hope that if he's got to spend 20 minutes with someone, I can make it quite a nice, fun, chatty 20 minutes. Um Sometimes it's been great, other times it's just, you know, almost been a waste of time. But that applies to a lot of different athletes, not not Nick. Um, and last year on court, for whatever reason, it just went well. I, I actually work quite hard on, like, there are ways to ask questions and there are ways to talk and present to people. And if you use Formula One as an example, 20 drivers, I'd probably ask half of them. It's exactly the same question in a different way because I know how their minds operate. I know what buttons I need to press to get a decent answer. Some need a little ego massage. If you tried to give Max Verstappen an ego massage, he'd like throw it straight back at you. You know, twice the weight. He doesn't need any of that. You know, some people do. So w- working with Nick, a couple of throughout Wimbledon last year, a couple of interviews, I was like, okay. And then there was one match; it was really intense, and I just stood at the side. I didn't even go onto court, onto the grass to start the interview, I let him just sit in his chair and in my ear, I was going, we need to start the interview. We need to start. He wasn't ready. He just wasn't ready. And then he looked over at me as if to say, all right, I thought you'd be hassling me. And I just was like, stood there and he was like, I'm ready. And then he came on. And I think that just eased in. And then we did more and more interviews throughout the time. And um, then I did the big one before the final. And then obviously the, the final didn't work out well for him. Um, but... Yeah, I just think it's about having the respect for the person who you're interviewing. There's so much um, trust in that moment on in both ways. And some people will respond well to you and others will just absolutely go through the motions and that's fine. But as long as I feel I've done the best I can in that situation, um, then I can sort of like go home and sleep a little bit easier.
1: That's why you're one of the best in the business. Oh, thank it's you. It's unri- like listening to you talk about these people that you've interviewed is is awesome. I'm going to double down yes. on break points. So, and then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> so, when Nadal, it's the opening scene, maybe it's the trailer when he is in. Do you call it the tunnel?
0: I love this bit. This is this is one of my favorite things. I kind of watch it just for this. It psychs out. Yeah.
1: So he's there in the t- I, uh, the tennis thing. The, the couple of things. I'm getting excited here. So watching the Andy Murray doc, I didn't realize how tight they all were. Yeah. And then on break point where Nadal is in the tunnel and he's like, "whap bam He's like there, like like so, as in working on his stroke and stuff like that, but aggressive. So for
0: people who are listening alpha. to this, this is like you're waiting in the tunnel and you're probably you facing your Nadal for the first bag. time. And do you know what it makes the, the if there's Nadal and a rival, it makes the rival look like a kid off to school. They're mm. sitting with their bags on their shoulders, like, you know, can't wait for this moment, trying to keep the anxiety Nadal is sprinting past them. Like, you know, backhand, forehand, sprints back past them. Shoo, shoo, There's a great shoo. clip a few years ago from Wimbledon as I was say, it's a great clip, but he's so like pumped. He's leaping up and down nonstop and he smashes his head off the roof. Literally before he goes out and plays uh, at Wimbledon. He jumps so high. He's bouncing up and down like a grasshopper. He smashes his head off the roof. <laughs> he's like all dazed and confused. But um I Love Rafa. He, I, I, I do think uh, Roger Rafa out of any sport I've ever worked in, they would be the two. I have never seen kindness that they show to um, the whole crew. So when you do these interviews in a little room at Wimbledon, um, you know there'd be a sound guy, a camera guy, the guy who logs and organises everything. To this day, Rafa will go round and shake every single person's hand, give me a hug, all the rest of it. I see him once a year.
1: What a legend.
0: Like, I see him, like I don't mean once a year, I see him like, you know, 14 days in a row once a year. Mm. Uh, and, and Roger was exactly the same. And one of my favourite ever moments was a few years ago at Wimbledon and there was a, a, a tennis player who was known as Dready Tennis, Dustin Brown, and he was seen a little bit as a sort of trick shot player, a little bit like Kyrgios when when Nick first came on, but it was so much more, as there is with Nick, to this guy. And I happened to be interviewing Roger Federer in this little quiet room, and... The, the thing that people don't realise is that I was actually, you know, I'm always doing these interviews but I'm also watching centre court because then I have to turn up on court and do the interview so you're kind of really multitasking and Roger obviously could see this because I'd be asking Roger a question and then like glancing and um, he said to, and Roger said are you doing this match and I, afterwards I said yeah I am and he went this guy's really interesting and he sat down with me in front of a TV monitor and watched about five, ten minutes of the match and he's like, in three shots that ball's gonna go here. And it did. And it was that moment I thought, There is this is like chess. He is so far ahead. Like Roger Federer was so far ahead, as you know, as every tennis player is. They're playing the shot that's in front of them, but they know what's happening. Like when they put a serve down, they know what's coming next. And I find that really interesting. The fact that Roger sat with me and watched some of a match with me and talked me through it. To this, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now. To this day, I cannot imagine how that will be surpassed. <laughs> I hope it will, because it means it's going to be an even greater moment. But just the kindness, the courtesy, the respect that he showed me and the others in the room as well. It was just something really special.
1: That is so cool.
0: Just operate on a different level. Such a capacity for, for kindness. And I think you get that with the greats. It's not... Some people are so exhausted and consumed about the sport or the job they do that and, and I 100% get that because sometimes it happens at me at work someone will come up to chat and I'm like I'm just about to go on live and I don't have any room to converse but people who are great find that you know they always have 10% yeah. extra
1: people that are great I think that because everything yeah must feel easier yeah slow emotion exactly yeah you present
0: yeah Dan Carter talked about that mm. as well. You know, it's just having that extra space and capacity to to see what's happening and to to give yourself to others as well. And uh, yeah,
1: I've underestimated tennis. Oh yeah, but, but speaking out loud. I mean, it's not something that I would. I think about it and I watch it and the doc, but it's not something that I've ever spoken about. But actually, now we're speaking about it. I'm like, it is one of the hardest sports i've seen it like i went to roland garros a few years ago and the speed and the athleticism um and the the psychological pressure is the really interesting one we're seeing that now with emma Radicanu yeah like playing out in the media and we saw after she won the us open it was everywhere and it was one of these things when we made a star of her in the uk all over the newspapers like young athletic woman, like what's going on here? It's all been about the Williams sisters for so many years. And then you look at her journey of changing coaches, like the injuries, she's popping up on the front of magazines and you're thinking, in this day and age with all the social media and she's spoken about coming off social media and and the pressures and stuff, you're just wondering if she can get back to that level. I mean, she's still very young. She's
0: incredibly young. Mm. I think she's what, Twenty-one mm. now or something.
1: Was that too much too early? Do you think? Because you you've worked since you sport, you've seen it. You can't control that. You can't. No. You,
0: you you know she won the U.S. Open from nowhere. She was a wild card, and the next thing you know, you're propelled into. You're a household name overnight. Mm. A household name, and. You just break down her last few years. She's been through five coaches. That's not ideal. She had to go to court. There was a guy, some guy stalking her. She's had operations on both wrists and an ankle. I mean, that is an awful lot to put your body through. No one, again, is doing that for fun. Like, you know, she needs that. She needs to have those operations. I hope that you see it quite a lot with tennis players. Um, you know, they sort of vanish off for a little while maybe they don't reach the potential that they showed whether it be in juniors for her it was obviously u.s open and then um you know they come back stronger because they just need to develop and grow and i'm not talking about just you know with their own bodies it's it's the mental game is colossal mm-hmm. psychologically uh, can you imagine just being like running around at a one on one situation. No. You know, it's like with people baying and screaming and shouting at you. And then what it finishes and you go home and you've got to do it in two days again? Mm-hmm. Time.
1: I'd go into red mode aggression. Just... You wouldn't
0: be green, you would be no, full red. I
1: know, you just revert to time. And we've been very lucky. I say we, oui, I'm putting myself in there. As a, as a fan, I'm a fan now, look yep. at me. But with this generation of oh unbelievable players, yeah. is Federer the best? And it's so hard because it is the debate, isn't it? Because Novak Djokovic, I've heard he's quite divisive. Again, just looking at media stuff and then Nadal. You see, and how do you them, measure
0: that... greatness? Is it success? Like, you know, in which case Novak has just become the most successful tennis player of all time. Now I've interviewed him so many times. I've, you know, learnt Serbian words to what's be able it, to say it. What's he like? Well, I th- he's only ever been lovely to me. Mm. He's only ever... Be- I can only judge someone on how they've been to me because otherwise it's, you know, it's not fair. I'd, it's, but um, I've done some great interviews with him. He's always very kind. He, you know, he he's, takes time. In fact, I'll give you a story. A few years ago at Wimbledon, I wasn't meant to be doing that in center it in centre court. wasn't my fault. But I was on court one. The next thing I'm checking, I looked at my phone because I checked the results all the time. And I was like, loads of missed calls. And whoever was meant to be doing centre court hadn't got there in time to do the interview. Now, it wasn't on court at that time. It was in our little cupboards off court that we used to use before the pandemic. And Novak had won and he was standing there. The floor manager, Owen Thomas, who I work with in Six Nations as well, was like, Uh, Novak, there's no reporter here to ask the questions. So he said, I'll wait. And then he waited about 20 seconds. And in the end, because they needed to get the interview, Owen said, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think you could talk for about a minute and a half? And um, Novak was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So Owen says, like, you know, he's kind of standing there all nervous. He was like, "Um, well done, Novak, you won. (laughs) And Novak was like, yeah, I did. And I'd spoke... Literally minute and a half, bang. Next day, Novak turns up in the interview room with a photo of himself and put to my favourite reporter and gave it to this floor manager because he could see what Owen had been through, which was like a lifetime of stress in the space of about 45 seconds. And, you know, I think people wouldn't ever imagine that or see that. And Novak went out of his way to make sure that Owen felt that he'd done a good job. Which I think is really, really lovely.
1: In the most unimportant time of the day for him as well.
0: Absolutely. And I just think that that is, uh, you know, so, you know, people say that Novak is divisive. and uh, But for me, the stories I've heard and how he's or how he's been with me is, is great. I'm a huge and Nadal fan. I love the energy. I love, like, Roger is immaculate. You never know, sweats. Never sweats. You know, everything's white. Cardigan. Remember he went through the cardigan mm, era? You know, would circle. turn up. Or, you know, just so classy, perfect. Rafa, an uncontrollable ball of energy. You see it before he serves. You see it how he is. You see it in the tunnel and the dock racing around. You see it in his interviews. I love that sort of... He's, he's definitely not a flawed genius. He's just a genius in my eyes. But he also... um comes out with these big lines about, you know, he knows how great he is. Now, you don't get, most of them, uh, never say that out loud. Roger knew it. Rafa knows it. Rafa would have won so much more had he not had the injuries that he's had. I mean... His it, knee. It, I, I had a similar His knees, injury. his feet, his hips. Mm. You know, when he stops, he is going to be in all sorts of bother. Um, but... I love. I just. I think he's fantastic. And actually, when you looked at, um, you know, the, when you when you basically get the Labor Cup and things, and you get these like dream teams. I loved seeing how Roger and Rafa were together, how they interacted with each other, because they are so different, and yet they're not. They're greats at their game. The level of respect was colossal, and I, I loved seeing them together.
1: Because on the Andy Murray one, they he talks about growing up and going to the same kind of academies as. Mm-hmm. The, so, th- are they mates off the court?
0: Roger and Rafa. Well,
1: Roger Rafa, but like these these players are, aren't they? Like they yeah. tra- they travel around and they've grown they tra- up together.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit like Formula One. It's a travelling circus. They would have played each other uh, when they were, you know, juniors and worked their way up. Obviously, it depends on what age because one or two years, you know, will pu- will put you into a different age bracket and then you're not. But um, Andy is seems to be absolutely respected by all. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a Nick Kyrgios or a Roger or a Rafa or a Novak. These guys all absolutely love him. And I think that's a sort of real mark of, of a person.
1: I'm going to give him a top five.
0: Top five in tennis?
1: Top five in tennis. I didn't think we were going to talk about tennis.
0: I wasn't even sure you knew five tennis players.
1: I do. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think I did either. Well, I've just given you four. You have. <laughs> uh, so this is based on nothing other than my mind now and emotion. Okay. So I love Andy Murray. Okay. Like, I'd love to get him on one day. Please, Andy Murray, come on. He, need, he need, If he brings out a book, he's going to need listeners, isn't he? He's going to need people to engage Can I engage just say with. I'm
0: not here just because of my book. I'm just here not. for a friendly chat.
1: Oh, well, this is what it's turned into. It's a conversation. It's not it. even an interview. It's a conversation. So I keep looking at the, the name Inside F1. I should know that, shouldn't I? Because... Yeah. I'm doing the interview, conversation. So, number one, Andy Murray. Okay. Just because Andy Murray, Scottish yeah, absolutely, and yeah. Scottish. I love Rafael Nadal. And I kind of put it in there. He had a patella tendon injury. So did I. In a time in which it was tough to have that injury because okay. they, there was no kind of cure. Owen Hargrove, the footballer, had it. Mm-hmm. He had surgery. Rafa didn't. I didn't. And look at us. So, we're on a level.
0: But does he have the big Rafa show? No, he doesn't.
1: No, he doesn't. So no. one up to you. No, yeah, I'll take that. Thank you. Does he follow you on, on social or not? Yeah. I see he's not going to say this. No. So Andy Murray, I've gone Rafa too. Yeah. Federer, but he could be one. But I've gone Roger Federer. Love him. I don't know this bloke that well, but I've read bits of his book. Andre Agassi. Yeah, great Loose. book. Great book. Loose as a goose. Okay. So.
0: You're bringing him in for different reasons.
1: So I'm bringing him he in. He was
0: actually a great tennis player yeah, as well. Yeah, but
1: they had them, like, did he play with the wood ones, the wood rackets? No, no he didn't. No, that was before. No. That was Boris Becker, who we can't talk about. He yeah. seems wild. He's you can talk about Boris. Yeah, I'd have I'd have him because I want him on because of the, like, his story about being in jail and stuff like that. That'd be pretty cool. But I'd have to go number five. I can't I think say you,
0: th- you've mentioned about six or seven. Like,
1: right, let me go five <laughs> and then you can give me three. So I'm going to go Andy Murray, <laughs> Rafa Nadal. yeah. Federer, yeah, Djokovic. I'm going to go, yeah. and then Andre Agassi. I didn't okay. really watch Agassi play that much.
0: Agassi was was great when I first started like watching tennis and things. That whole Agassi, Sampras, their...
1: Sampras as well, Pete Sampras. You know
0: the, the BBC office at Wimbledon is um, hilarious. Th- things happen in there. I've got a photo on my phone actually. I, I was we were doing this thing because c- quite often there's a World Cup or something around the corner, um, for. The geniuses that be decided to come up with Coppa Uppy, which is the keepy Uppy Challenge. Um, and we were trying to get everyone to do it. So I had to go to the practice courts and like, hi, Andy, would you mind doing some keepy Uppies on camera? So this is like, you know, all of a sudden my, my job for the day. And we'd asked Rafa and Rafa turned up in the office. And a picture on my phone is uh, John McEnroe watching. Rafa Nadal trying to do keepy uppies with a tennis ball, which is just like literally fired across the room, like obliterated. It's like a piñata's gone off. There's things flying from every direction. And Boris Becker in the room at the same time. And I just looked around. And this is like a a room where there's like boxes of tunics, caramel wafers, and the bin needs to be emptied. It's like an absolute tip. Stationery cupboards exploded, all the rest of it. And I'm looking around thinking, Boris Becker, John McEnroe, Rafa Nadal doing kipi-uppies. That's quite good.
1: I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm going to get to tennis.
0: Well, you sound like, I mean, you know a More minimum five players.
1: Well, give me your three. Rafa. Number one?
0: Yeah. Roger. See, I'm about to be a bit clouded because I'm, I've met these people and therefore they've created such an impression in my life. Um, I don't want to leave out Andy, but then I do think, and I can say really, Okay, I think so, because he was who I, again, so much of who you follow and support in sport is uh, who was part of your childhood. Mm. Uh, so like a Michael Schumacher for me. It doesn't mean to say I'm not, you know, I, I know Alain Prost and, you know, never met Ayrton Senna, but I completely appreciated what they did. Um, but for it's so much of um, what shapes you as a child is, is what you see yeah. The, and then the you nostalgia. go back and you look back and all the rest of it when you develop you know a sort of interest in something but for me I think I just uh, I loved Agassiz. again it was like he turned up like this um, just the hair and the headband and it was just all a bit cool and unorthodox you know he wasn't really playing by the rules in terms of yes he was wearing white but it's not quite what Wimbledon had seen mm-hmm. for a while so yeah he stood out for me
1: I like Leighton Hewitt as well because he was Australian
0: yes I've met him a few times he's very nice
1: yeah he's got a bit of Heath Ledger about him
0: yeah he's good friends with Mark Webber is he yeah
1: Aussies you've got such a cool life <laughs> do you feel like that or not? Because when I talk it, about we, it... we were talking about the amount of travel, and this yeah. isn't about moaning. No, I struggle with travel, mm-hmm. and it takes the joy out of some of the stuff that I do. Because and whether because I'm not know whether it's a flying, I don't know what it is. But I struggle with the jet lag and all of these things, so I can't one hundred percent enjoy some great opportunities that I have. If you're on the road as much as you are, doing these amazing things. Like are you tired?
0: Well, I do suffer from insomnia, so I have been awake since three AM and that's in the UK. I think it's just an overhang of everything that happens. But
1: And you were it, nervous about coming on here as well. I was well. really nervous. Yeah, with all the people that exactly. you interview.
0: Um but I, I don't know. I mean I, I we do sort of all live our lives by this that you you only have a, a limited number of heartbeats, so use them wisely. That's how a lot of people in Formula One operate. So between the Six Nations matches, I went to Malaysia to give a one-hour talk um, in February. So I literally uh, left a match, flew to Malaysia, spoke for an hour at a conference about how 5G and data has changed the world of Formula One, and then buzzed straight back and then did the next match. That's kind of how I operate It's uh, it's not particularly healthy, but um, I do try and put things in place to keep me healthy. But saying that I am about to start from next week every day until the first of August, every single day. And I am a little bit over um, sort of overwhelmed by the thought of that. They are great things. I'm presenting three F1 races and Wimbledon and the uh, preview shows in the week up to Wimbledon. But it is a huge amount of time. Mm. Um and then I take August off and then September, October I'll do Rugby World Cup and then I'll also present three Formula One races at the same time now that is intense but you know I do have to be slightly sensible I had, a, I had been asked to go to Singapore to do a one hour talk again and it was a Tuesday between the two uh, World Cup matches. So I technically was free, but there comes a time where you just have to be slightly sensible. You will make yourself ill mm. if, if you carry on like that. So, yeah, I'm, I think I've got everything in place for the next five weeks. It is literally every day. But yeah, I'll just have to, I'll just have to fingers crossed and, and get through it.
1: With your preparation... do you do it when you're traveling like do you have any kind of hacks you don't sleep on the plane because we we were talking about not eat you can fast on the plane and do all these things but the amount of preparation that must go in like anything from just getting the names right not of the headlines but of people that you might not have heard of before like the data the stats and everything that comes with the stress of being on screen yeah how does that all work
0: F1 is actually quite easy because I'm part of it. And, you know, as long as I watch the races and get the notes and uh, know what's happened, then that's fine. But I will have to write my script for the Friday morning programmes that I'm presenting at Silverstone on the Thursday whilst I'm at Wimbledon. It's the only time I have. Then I leave Wimbledon the Thursday night. Now there's a roof, so it might go on till half ten at night. Then drive to Silverstone And probably be in for 7am and then do the programmes that day. That's my choice. That's fine. But I have, you know, it's two different channels. So I can't say to Channel 4, I'm sorry, I was really bad at my job today. I was really tired because I was working for the BBC yesterday. (laughs) That doesn't fly. Um, So I do a lot of prep. I have to do a lot of prep for for Wimbledon, certainly, because I drop in on, on tennis, you know, once a year. Maybe I do sometimes Eastbourne or Queen's. But yeah. The great thing is that when you love what you do, it doesn't really feel like work. People are paying an awful lot of money to go to these things. And I'm there getting paid to be there. So I have a responsibility to, to be good at my job. Um, and quite simply, if I'm not good at my job, then I won't be there next year. I always have that in the back of my mind. So I do put pressure on myself. There's no doubt I'm fortunate that most of the things I'm doing, certainly over the next three or four weeks, are UK based, so there shouldn't be any jet lag involved. Um, Whereas when I'm doing a Formula One race, a lot of the drivers and people three days out will start to switch their time zone by maybe an hour or two hours, so you're not tired when you get there. I mean, it's not a particularly uh, sociable way of living your life, but it does get you there much better prepared. I do work with a couple of people that can help me and advise me. Um, You know, as soon as I get on a plane, I'm in the time zone of the place that I'm going to. So... I I don't really sleep anyway but um, I wouldn't necessarily have screens on even if I'm just lying there I won't eat on a plane I might take some of my own food but I'm not a massive fan of eating on planes anyway so I would just use that as a fast Um, and then when you get there you know I'll either go to the gym or depending on what time it is you know I'll, I'll just switch straight into to wherever I am and if it means that I've not slept for 36 hours so be it because I will sleep eventually but it's just looking after yourself and making sure that you have your supplements and everything that you need when you're away to get yourself through it.
1: That's where Athletic Greens comes into it for anyone that's travelling.
0: Or 4-5. 4-5.
1: 4-5. I love how we are flipping this round to George Cruz, my former teammate, and talking up his CBD, which you're involved in, so I'm happy to do that.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: One thing that we've spoken about as well, I'm going to say, there's a movement to empower women in sport, which is amazing. I've got a wife, I've got two girls at home, and I'm all for it. But I don't see it as a thing or ever have seen it as a thing. So I see it from a different point of view. Like, mm-hmm. It just is what it is. But we were talking about some of the best women in sport, like yourself, Gabby Logan, Jill Douglas, Laura Woods yeah, on Claire Talk Sport, Balding. Claire Bolden. I mean, we could go, there's so many great women mm. that are doing stuff that a lot of men most men couldn't do it's too stressful too stressful too much detail um need to look great on camera and all these things that a lot of men can't do like how do you feel like flying the flag in that space because these sports that we've talking about and we've touched on women's sport but the only where we've touched on it is a little bit in the tennis and we kind of referenced it in formula one yeah but a male dominated environment and you're a woman that's fronting that, and there is the—is movement the right word? Would you say? How, how, do we say it more politely? I
0: don't know. It's it's interesting because I think uh, the people that you've sort of named there, in terms of Gabby, Claire, myself, Jill, we've been there for quite a while. Mm. So um, you know, we're all slightly different ages, and um, you've seen the change. I, I came in. You know, certainly after Gabby and Claire and Jill, but um, there is definitely more of a a fixation about it now. But I was pleased I was there to begin with, because I've never had it in my mind that I was, you know, token bird. Hmm. I've never had it in my mind that I was there to make up numbers. Maybe I was at the beginning, I don't know, but I didn't treat myself that way. And I think that's the huge, important difference. That I have never rested on my laurels. I've never been there and thought, do you know what? I'm female. Give me my chance. It's never entered my mind. I've never woken up on a morning and thought, do you know what? I want to be the best female to ask a question today. I want to be the best female to present a programme today because I would only be seeing 50% of the bigger picture. I want to be the best person to ask a question today. I want to be the best person to present a programme today. Sometimes that's not going to work out, but that's the aim that I would always have. I wouldn't uh, curtail my ambitions because of my gender. It doesn't even enter my mind. And it's a really interesting conversation that everyone's having at the moment. And, you know, I've said this before, but by all means, I think that everyone should be given opportunities, regardless of gender, ethnicity. Flood the grassroots of sport, flood every, you know, hobby, craft, whatever it is out there. Everyone should feel welcome. I feel very passionately about that. Everyone should feel welcome. But then there comes a point where we have a responsibility to be there because we're good at our jobs. And that's on us. That's on me. I'm not going to sit back at Wimbledon and think, God, you know, they need a girl at Centre Court. I want to be there because I'm at that given moment the best person for that job. I work that way. It's it's you know built into my psyche. I treat myself that way. I work hard to make sure that I have that sort of um, you know back sort of backlog of knowledge, as it were. Um, and some days it will work out, and you come away from it and you're thinking, God, I, you know, I was I did well today. It doesn't always happen. But it doesn't happen because I'm female, not male. It just, that's the way it is. I can't change that. So I just want to be the best that I can be, regardless, ethnicity, gender, all the rest of it.
1: Well, I didn't even know whether to ask that because it is a, but it is quite topical. It's it's very
0: topical. But I, I think, you know, when you're at home watching television, there are so many channels that you can pick. There are so many different things that you can watch the least that you can demand of the person who you've welcomed into your living room is that they are good at their job, mm. regardless. So that is what I always have in the back of my mind. Uh, I want to be as good as I can be at my job.
1: Because I get asked, D- do I get nervous before I do things? I'm not putting myself nowhere near on your level, by the way. <laughs> but I do, Like even before this, before I do anything, I get nervous. And it's because... I care about what I want to do. Of I've course. got I've got other people that don't get nervous, and there could be reasons for that. Either that some they don't care; it's like they just do it, get paid, transactional, get paid. Doesn't matter if we do a good job. Some it's they'll be like sociopaths, uh, so they don't get nervous. I get nervous because I care because I'm conscious that not only is it an opportunity, but also a responsibility to deliver whatever it is—detail, information, charisma to people that are paying. Because, I mean, there's so many different things that people can do now in terms of what they're watching. So to try to get their attention, especially on my sport, which is rugby, I feel a responsibility to make it as insightful as give them as much knowledge in a way in which they can... die. I'm not saying I do this, by the way, but that's in my mind that yeah, I feel you'll like prepare, I want to do. Yeah, you? will prepare
0: you will do preparation yes. to get to that. And there's a... You know, to go back to tennis, uh, the great Arthur Ashe has a quote, and it's actually my screensaver. And to sort of paraphrase, it's um, one of the keys to success is self-confidence. One of the keys to self-confidence is preparation. Mm. And to me, that's it in a nutshell.
1: I, I used to be a... Not a winger... I used to hide behind, oh, I, I, I need to walk through it or I would, would just turn up and see what happens. But now I'm getting more into a place where there is more pressure. I thought you meant
0: like an 11 or a 14. You were like Could hanging around on the the wing. Should
1: have been, should have been. I never
0: had you in that no, capacity. No, you, you watched
1: me play. One of the worst who have ever done it. Good I, I
0: actually thought that you were a, a winger as in, like, I thought.
1: I might have been the slowest professional rugby player I say professional rugby player as in Six Nations. I might have been the slowest Six Nations player. But you weren't on the wing? Ever. No. Definitely not on the wing. No. I would have okay. loved to have been a winger. Centre. That's, That's the perfect. best position Center, in rugby. Yeah. I'm going to Vegas in November.
0: Hangover for. The four.
1: 18th. Hangover for. i I'm Gonna going to wake up
0: with a tiger in your room?
1: I would be very happy and a tattoo on my face. I'm all over it. <laughs> Never been to Vegas. But there's an F1 race there, and I saw it. It's like, you know what? If not now, then when? It's a
0: Saturday night Formula One race. How cool. It's absolutely. We don't know if
1: it's going to be cool, but I imagine it's going to be unreal. So, this is going to be the first one.
0: First Vegas.
1: Is this all because of this drive to survive doc that has just. They've always wanted
0: um, more US races. I mean, even 20 years ago, they were talking about doing one round. Disney World or Disneyland, and you know, Disney were nervous about it because of the risk of you know, danger. It's a sport where you know, accidents, bad accidents can happen, as we touched upon. Uh, so, that doesn't really fit in with their you know, Mickey Mouse and fun vibes. <laughs> so, uh, Vegas is probably Did, well, a Disney little bit gone more gone Wild looser, West, but Disney have gone yeah. looser now. Um, but, but I do think it's probably you know. Up uh, right up Vegas Strasse, so to speak. So it's going to be uh, along the strip. Yeah, I you'll be there, wait. front and center.
1: I will. Will you be there?
0: I'm not doing Vegas.
1: You, would you, you're not?
0: No, not at the moment. We'll yeah. see how, how what happens in the championship. I'm doing Austin and Mexico. We split them. So uh, th- there's just a massive back-to-back races at that time. I think it goes for for reasons unknown. Uh, the powers that be have made the calendar Qatar. Vegas, Abu Dhabi So, you know, they just pop to Vegas In between two Middle Eastern races And it and they're back to back as well So that will be the only thing The only handbrake on the drivers going out on the Saturday night Is the fact that they've got to get to Abu Dhabi For the final race of the year Like 24 hours later
1: What do you call it? Travelling circus?
0: Travelling circus
1: Like, that is exactly what it is It yeah. is so fucking cool <laughs> Hey, like as in the coolest uh, thing on the planet to drive around in them cars they're like jets yeah with the helmet on flying their private jets yeah but you know what was really cool and i've mentioned
0: it before but you know when mark weber's last race it's like what does a driver do at the end of their career what's he gonna do and mark weber took his helmet off and drove the track, and like the wind blowing in his hair and all the rest of it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Mm. As your big farewell moment, like the last time you're going to be in a car. Is that what he did? Yeah. And they were furious that we're going to penalise him for oh, it. He was like, "Bring it on, it. bring it on." Yeah. Where are they going to penalise him from? Yeah, he wasn't racing again.
1: I keep looking at the name. I don't <laughs> know why it says inside F one. Not that we're here necessarily to promote you, but I wanted to have you on even before yeah, the we book came it out beforehand. Didn't we? But for people that might want to get it, do you want to do a little? Well, I think you said it to all. The um, Inside, Inside F1 that you narrate.
0: Inside F1 is out uh, now in paperback, hardback. You get lots of photos on that. Jim's. Oh, do you? Yeah. Right,
1: I'll have to Don't buy Don't worry. Yeah, I'll buy but,
0: one. But Jim, you listen to it. Uh, the foreword is by David Cothard, narrated by myself. And it's not really about me, it's about the careers of seven Formula One drivers but told using all my old interviews um, and current interviews. But yeah, it's, you know, when I got a gun pulled out on me in uh, Brazil, that was the, the weekend that Lewis Hamilton became champion and took horse to Michael Schumacher. So all their careers are basically told through uh, my random and amusing stories with them. But you'll learn an awful lot. If you like Formula One and you don't know the backstories to the drivers, um, this should fill in any of the blanks
1: yeah it's really cool and I spent one of my credits you saw me press the it. button
0: I know I not wasted I did say I would have uh, you know given you a free copy no but you were adamant
1: no it's... it was
0: between Harry Potter and myself and I won out
1: I've loved it thank you I didn't think we were going to talk about much. as much tennis but I'm happy we did
0: well I'm, I'm excited I, That's that is my life for the next few weeks so I'm very excited about tennis
1: me too let's do it again we'll thank do it again much.
0: thank you so much